moment of prayer before the sermon. Let us pray. May the words that I speak now and the thoughts and the feelings that we all now experience be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. That reading that we just heard from 1 Corinthians, the first reading we heard this morning, is always, I think, the greatest proof that St. Paul was the first Methodist. Did you notice it? Did you notice what he was saying as he sent greetings? Don't know about you, but if I get a letter, I normally only cursorily give a glance to the first sentence or two because it's normally flowery greetings I'm normally keen to get to what's the point. We do the same with Paul's letters occasionally. We don't read what he says, but in an era where the things for writing were incredibly expensive, there's never a wasted word in Paul's letters. In fact, there's lots of examples through them where even when he had second thoughts, having had something written down, he doesn't cross it out. He simply corrects what he was saying the first time round and carries on. In greeting the church in Corinth, and Corinth was a huge multicultural city. It was a port. It was on the crossing of various trade routes. There were people living in it from every country in the known world different language groups, different cultural groups, and a Christian community in the middle of all that, which reflected all of them. And when Paul writes to them, it's really interesting that he writes to them and sends them greetings together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, he says. Now, Paul had a particularly close relationship with the Christians in Corinth, so he's presumed by talking about our Lord, meaning his Lord and the Corinthians' Lord, when he talks about others and their Lord, He's talking about a group that neither he nor the Corinthians have that much to do with. This may well be the Aramaic-speaking Christians back in the Holy Land and Jerusalem, who, if you read the Acts of the Apostles of Paul's letters, you realise that Paul had a bit of an up-and-down relationship with. The group in Corinth had a lot of Gentiles. It may even have been predominantly Gentiles. Gentiles meaning not Jews. And groups in Jerusalem, which were mainly Jews, there was a cultural difference. So Paul is writing to the people in Corinth and saying to them, the greetings of God are for you, but they're not just for you. The blessings of God are for all those who call on the name of the Lord because 
the God of that group over there, the Lord of that group over there, is the same God and Lord as the one we know. Now, if you want a good description or a biblical justification for connectionalism, there you are. And we've always called Methodism a connectional church because we are interconnected. We are the church in this particular place, but we're not the whole of the church. We're connected with those who are faithfully trying to be Christ's disciples in other places. And they are connected with us. One thing that I found I increasingly had to do as I was going round the districts and the circuits as president of the conference last year was I increasingly found myself drawn into having to say to people in this place, thank you, thank you for trying to be Christ's disciples in this place. Thank you for carrying on through all the successes and the failures, the ups and the downs. Thank you for seeking to worship God and sharing God's mission as disciples of Christ in this place. Because I rapidly came to see that for a people who emphasise grace, we're sometimes rubbish at gratitude. We're not very good at saying to each other, well done, thank you. We're not very good at being interconnected. And yet, in the United Kingdom, or in the area of the United Kingdom that the Methodist Church of Great Britain covers, because Northern Irish Methodists are part of the Methodist Church in Ireland, with Methodists in the Republic, but most of our congregations are below the size of where they could continue to exist if they were completely autonomous and independent. Most of our congregations would have folded if they were completely on their own. We still have a Methodist presence as our part of Christian presence in most reasonably large communities in the country. And we have that because we're all in it together. We have that because we can share ministers around, because we can give each other grants to do particular bits of work, because we can take resources in one place and port them to another place where there's need. Because at our best, we can react quickly to do that. Because at our best, we don't think of our church and our money. But we think of ourselves as the stewards of the resources that God has given all of us. Underneath the Methodist Conference, you are responsible here for good stewardship of the resources that your predecessors in the past and other parts of the church have given you. 
We are interdependent. We are interconnected. We are interconnected through the way we do things for each other and share resources for each other. And that involves receiving as much as giving. If you're only givers, you're rapidly going to become impoverished. We are givers and receivers of grace and of resources. And the way, of course, that we're really interconnected is in prayer. I deliberately started the service by sowing the seed of the idea that when we pray, many of you may use the Methodist prayer handbook. The prayer handbook, about a month ago, 27,000 copies of that have been sold already this year. And we're, what, still over 200,000, so that's about one in eight of our committed members has bought one. But if the prayer handbook which enables us to pray for Christians in other countries and Christians in other parts of our country, if that is only us praying for them without recognising that those people are already praying for us, that this is mutual, that we are being prayed for, and knowing you're being prayed for changes things. People often say when they're in deep distress or illness, just knowing other people are praying for them doesn't necessarily bring about a miracle, but it makes them feel held in the presence of God. And when we pray for the rest of the church, we open ourselves to the fact that the rest of the church is praying for us and we are enriched by that. To the church of God that's in one place, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours, grace and peace says St. Paul. But he also said something else very interesting in that thing because he said to the people at Corinth, he calls them sanctified. He says that they have been made holy. That's what sanctified means. He says that they've been made holy. But then in the next breath he says they're called to be saints. They're called to become holy. And in that there's another classic Methodist emphasis that becoming a disciple, becoming a child of God, becoming saved is not a one moment for all time change. It's not the end of something. It doesn't simply move you from that category of people, the unsaved, to that category of people, the saved. It starts you on a journey. And we have been made holy and we're called to work out that holiness, to live out that holiness, to become holy in our daily lives, 
in the life of our church, in the life of our community, in the way we deal with our human experience. The church in one place, people who've experienced Christ and are allowing themselves to be transformed by Christ, together with all those in every place who call upon the Lord, the same Lord, grace and peace. And if we start to think that sort of way, it totally changes the way we think about the global church. We could do a wonderful exercise if I got to know you well and you began to trust me. Well, I can ask you, I could start to ask you questions. If you hear the word missionary, what do you think of? And scratch most white English people. Somewhere, though we don't like it, somewhere still deep in our psyche is the idea of people going to benighted, uncultured, uneducated lands where people are ignorant in order to tell them what they don't know, but we do, and to run the risk of being put in a cooking pot. I'm deliberately caricaturing it. But I grew up in Sunday school being given those messages. Somehow we have to pluck that out of our psyches. It never was true. It was the way we like to think of it. And it certainly isn't true now. One of the strange things about electronic communication and the internet and everything is that what's happening in a village in Ghana, if you have relatives of the people there in your congregation, can be more real to you and closer to you than what's happening in the next chapel in your circuit. People you never visit or see. Somehow electronic communication brings everything a lot closer. The danger of that is it means that everything can equally become more distant and far away. I'm not sure whether all this communication stuff is making us more connected or more alienated from other people. Certainly in church terms. But it is a wonderful tool that could enable us to feel and be more connected with what's going on. And at times when people in other countries have struggled to be the church, we have sent them resources of money or people with skills. But there's lots of places in this country where our congregations are struggling to know what to do with people from different languages living in their area, people from different cultures living in their area, people, Christians of different cultures, or people of other faith of different cultures living in their area. 
And there are many parts of the Christian world where people have been tackling this question for a long time. The time has now come when they can start to send people of expertise and skill to help us. But we need to be honest that we need the help. Because none of us is wholly a giver or wholly a receiver. We all need to give and receive. We are interdependent and interconnected. That's the way the kingdom comes. Now, history shows that this is really difficult stuff for Christian churches to cope with. We're much happier going off in a group on our own because we don't like people in other churches. We're much happier thinking then of all sorts of excuses why we're better on our own and we're right and they're wrong. One of the things about Protestant Christianity, I don't know if you've ever noticed, is it's great at splitting. It likes strong leaders, and then as soon as some people in a congregation don't like the strong leader, they go off and form their own church. And then someone doesn't like that leader, so it happens again and again and again. That been a problem throughout Christian history. A Methodist minister, one of the leading theologians in the world in the 20th century dealing with ecumenism, Professor Jeffrey Enright, a British Methodist minister who served a lot of his time in America, always told a wonderful story at the start of classes with first-year students training for ministry who came from different traditions. And it would be this. He said, of course, at the beginning, the Christian church was wonderfully united in mission. Just look at the Acts of the Apostles, and you'll see how much they loved each other. If you know the Acts of the Apostles, you'll have spotted that he had his tongue in his cheek straight away. And everything went on all right for a long time, until eventually... Those people who spoke Latin couldn't cope with those who spoke Greek, so they separated. Which left just the Latin speakers as the true Church of Christ. And everything went on all right for a bit until in the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church refused to accept the insights of the Reformers, which left just the Protestants as the true Church of Christ. And then, sadly, the other European countries insisted on being European, which left just the Church of England. And the Church of England then refused to accept the mission of the Wesleys, which leaves the Methodists as the true Church of Christ. <laughs> and his point of telling it like that, of course, was it turned the tables, because lots of people do tell that sort of story, but with other people left as the true Church of Christ might be some people because of their doctrines or some people because of their Pope. But we're all in this together. Able to recognise that people of different history and experience and culture and background 
can be servants of our Lord as much as we can. And actually that we can enrich each other by all those things rather than diminish each other by them. But the tendency to hive off into just your own tiny group and impose that on everybody else, and if they don't like it, they can join you. We go out on mission and we want people to join us, providing they get changed and we don't. And yet if new people come and join you, that's going to change you, hopefully by enriching you. But this goes right back to the earliest times, as I say. And in that gospel reading that you heard, you heard the tense of it. Those central chapters of Mark's gospel again and again come back to a theme of what does it mean for Jesus to be God's anointed agent, Messiah, and Son of God? What it means is that he's got to be prepared to go to the cross. What does it mean to be a follower of the one who God has called Messiah and Son. It means you've got to prepare to take up your cross and go with him. And how does that work out? It works out in your relationships with other people. And again and again in those central chapters, the disciples stumble over the fact that they are constantly working about which of them is more important than the others. Who's got higher status? Who's righter and who's wronger? Who are the bosses? Who are the givers? Who are the ones with resources who give it to others? Which of us is the greatest, they argue about? When you come in your kingdom, who will sit on your right and your left? Who will be your favourites? Who will be your bosses? And we still do that as we think of Christians in the rest of the world church. We still like to think of who are the bosses? Who have got the status? Who are the givers? And Jesus again and again says, if you wish to be a follower of mine, you've got to be the servant of all. And he uses the word for a slave. You've got to be the servant of all and the slave of all. And we do that within a world church. I'll beg you to become conscious, to inform yourselves of what's happening throughout the world church. To become conscious of it and aware of it and informed about it and to pray about it because you're part of it and they are part of you. And in fact, we shouldn't talk about them because in Christ we are all us. Amen.